on the house or every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Come on around back, Arizona. It's the very last Saturday of 2023, and this is the Outdoor Living Hour. And we're going to look back at some of the guests that we had throughout this year, including Peggy Sue Soreson and Mike Clow of Desert Kitchen with their native edibles, along with Farmer Greg. Those mesquite bean pods and those prickly pear fruit that you see uh, across the desert with the right preparation, they are delicious. So I brought uh, Palo Verde Blue Palaverde pods with beans that you can open and eat. They're ripe right now. This is a current event. I ate some this morning, <laughs> and they were delicious off of our tre- one of our trees. And this just came right out of your native landscape. Oh, yard. yeah. And any, they're all over the valley. Any Palo Verde will have these. They taste like edamame, don't they? They do. I would have to know what edamame tastes like to know if I compared how it compares to it, but it tastes fine to me. It yeah. tastes like a bean. It's, yes. it's a pretty yeah. sweet bean, I think, actually. Mm-hmm. It's on the sweet side for a bean to me, anyway. Uh, talking about mesquites because to harvest, basically. We have our annual mesquite bean milling. Don Titmus and I started, oh, about 15 years ago. Uh, and about five years ago, we bought a mesquite bean mill. And they're not cheap. They're about $15,000. Uh, And so it's an uh, annual event that we put on where we teach people how to harvest. And what do you do with the bean once you harvest it? Peggy? That's what we're going to explain. There's a process. Well, first you harvest it properly, and that's from the tree and not from the ground. So it's best to lay a tarp down. And then you you can, if you can reach the limbs, you know, you can pull the pods right off. Or if it's too high, you can take a stick and knock them off. If they're dry, they'll fall off onto the tarp. Leave the beans that are on the ground on the ground. Put the tarp down and then only gather exactly. the new ones that come off the tree. Now, what, what's wrong with the ones on the, off the ground? Well, there's a, something called aflatoxin. It's a, a mold byproduct that is in the soil. And with high heat and humidity that increases and it can become an issue or potentially could become an issue. So it's just good harvesting practice. And aflatoxin is not unique to mesquites by any means. This is a big issue for all kinds of beans, especially peanuts. peanuts. Um, corn. In the, in the agricultural industry, they are always testing for it, uh, making sure that they don't get it into the, our food stream. And so we do the same thing, you know, with the mesquites. We just are aware of how to avoid it and how to be smart. And um, it's, it's not a nice thing, but it's something you simply avoid and the problem is solved. And we do it every day when we eat peanut. Well, there's plenty of mesquite trees and each tree cr- produces plenty of pods. So That's an understatement. Just, just don't even worry about... Uh, what's on the ground what's on the ground so we're on the site we spread out a tarp we've knocked down what we can by hand get a Mm -hmm. stick shake the branches however you can so before you want to harvest from a tree you want to make sure that tree that the pods taste good not every tree even if they were all planted at the same time there are different levels of sweetness and you may get one that just uh, might have a little bad aftertaste So I like to harvest the sweetest pods. So what you do is you pick a a pod and put it in your mouth and suck on it and then lightly chew the pod to taste the the flavor of the pulp around the bean. It's, you're not actually eating the bean. Okay. And would you like to taste it? Sure. Here you go. 
And we are talking about the brown dried beans. The green beans are not ready. So we're looking for them to be brown and dry and snappy. Wonderful. I've just been sure. sucking on it now, and it does have a, a, a very uh, edible flavor now. So here's some flour that I brought so you can taste it a little and bit better. This is what happens when it gets from... You grind it up. You take it to the mill. From here to the mill. Now, are we missing any steps jumping to here? We talked about well, you do want testing to the tree. The... Testing the tree. We have the tree. We're going to put a tarp down. We knock the tarp off. We collect them. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, then what? Just take them straight to the mill, or no? There is a process. You want to first of all um, just go lay them out and pick through any green pods that might have come off the tree, and any stems or leaves. Remove those, and then you want to dry the beans so you can dehydrate them you can put them in the oven on let's say 300 for approximately 30 minutes but you every oven is different so keep an eye on it and um, check them maybe every 15 10 or 15 minutes and when they're completely dry then you can store them in a food grade bucket save it for the milling so I've got all these bean pods. They've mm-hmm. been collected, sorted through, baked out. Um, now, I, am I saving them inside the casing like this, or do I have to break the casing? No, you cannot. Oh. These beans, are, there's a technical term, I think it's inahescent or something along those lines, that these are inseparable. When you are milling this thing, you're going to mill the pod and the beans together. Okay. And the flavor, the protein, uh, everything about it is, is in both together. And this is one reason we need that hammer mill. These things are, are hard, they're inseparable, and we need that hammer mill to, to do it. Is this why it costs $15,000, Farmer Greg? Yeah, exactly. Well, the thing sits on a trailer, um, and it's about a 20-foot-long trailer, and when it's fully assembled, it stands about 15 feet tall. So it's now, pretty epic, actually. And folks ask all the time, can I just put these in my grain mill? Because I make flour all the time from wheat, oats, whatever. And the answer is no. And the reason is what makes these beans so great is good old sugar. This, these beans are full of sugar. You can it, taste it. It, it. When I tasted that spoonful that you gave me just a moment ago, I thought in my mind, like, there's like brown sugar added to Brown this. sugar. That's exactly <laughs> it. Well, it has been added by the tree. <laughs> these things are full of sugar. That's why people love them. They love them for the same reason they love anything this sweet these are delicious because of the sugar so you put these in a stone mill and your stone is gummed up in seconds you're going to be very sorry if you do that so do not put them in a stone mill if i go out and collect let's say two five gallon buckets full of mesquite beans and pods how much flour will that produce on the back end or do you all have any kind of you know ratio scale to to judge by it'll be several pounds if you had two five gallon buckets you'd be good for a chunk of the year in terms of baking up some nice goodies with them and when you yeah. said a tree has a plethora of pods being an understatement i mean one tree you could easily and, fill up more than a five gallon bucket if yeah. you found the right mature tree and when i'm talking about understatement i'm thinking about the fact that if you looked at all the mesquites in arizona we could live off this stuff i mean we <laughs> mean phoenix you know, uh, this food was the staple food for the people basically from the Pacific coast to the Gulf of Mexico. This is an in, this is a staple food, and there is a lot of it out there. And we we can 
really enjoy this stuff because it's so darn good tasting. But yeah. um, but this is a this is a very nice gluten free flour with extra sweetener in it. You can literally reduce the sugar in your recipe. You can literally cut it to half, or even go. A lot of times, I'll bake with things like applesauce, to where I can have a no sugar added recipe. This is so sweet, and that's that's one of the big rewards here. You get a flour that allows you to reduce the sugar that you're adding in. Can you give me your top three recipes off the top of I your head? Can, I can give you the recipe of what I made. Okay. It's a mesquite ball, okay. and it's really simple. I mix uh, equal parts mesquite flour with peanut butter or any nut butter, and then I add a, just a touch of honey because it's a good binder. You can roll it in more mesquite flour or in cacao or carob flour, sunflower seeds, sesame seeds, anything, and or even these seeds right here that I brought <laughs> that I'll be telling you about. The main, so it makes a, a nice, simple treat. The main product that people make with this, you'll see it done around, is mesquite pancakes. This is a nice-tasting pancake. Um, another uh, way to equate this flavor or understand this flavor is people think it tastes a little like graham crackers. So think of a graham cracker-flavored pancake. A graham cracker pancake. And I'll tell you, uh, a mesquite with chocolate prickly chip. prickly pear syrup on it. Exactly. exactly. You are quite correct. And a chocolate chip cookie made with this is a wondrous thing. People want that. As soon as they have it, they want more. This well, is a great chocolate chip cookie base. That's what he likes to bake. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and eat a lot. Mm-hmm. I really Amen to that. There are a lot of edible trees, but for the natives, there's uh, Palo Verde and ironwood trees, and they both produce beans, and they're really quite good. And like the the blue Palo Verdes that I brought today, they're they're tender, they're uh, tasty, kind of buttery, and you open up the pod, take them out. Just like a regular bean pod. Or you could boil them in salt water. And just eat them like edamame, which, you know, it's kind of easy to just, they pop right out of the the pod. And I guess that kind of answered a question I was going to ask. Could I take mesquite and ironwood and Palo Verde all together and get it milled at once? But it sounds like the ironwood you have to separate, so that would be a... They're very no different. On that one. They're very different because with the Palo Verde, we're talking about a normal quote-unquote bean in a pod versus the mesquite is very unusual with this bean and pod together and all this sugar and a very different flavor. So you would you would handle these separately. They're okay. very different foods. Well, prickly pears, uh, they do produce uh, really nice fruit. Uh, you have to harvest them with tongs because they have glockids, which are little hairs that get into your skin and... You know, it can be very irritating. It's best just to wash them off while they're in the bucket, uh, give them a good rinse. For the most part, with prickly pears, the juice is what you're after. And then you take that juice and you make your jellies, your syrups, your all kinds of stuff. So those little glockids, those little gnarly thorns, you don't want to get into those. By freezing the prickly pears, first of all, it, it, it explodes the cells inside the prickly pear so that when it thaws, it goes to mush. So it makes it a whole lot easier to get the juice from. Plus, interestingly, those glockids go away when you freeze. Mm-hmm. They basically dissolve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Prickly pears are the best known, I think, of all the Arizona desert uh, foods because prickly pear jelly is in every store practically in one form or another. And the thing that people don't know, though, is the health benefits of this are really significant. This thing is packed with antioxidants. It's packed with flavones. It is uh, glycemic regulating. In Mexico, it is uh, 
prescribed by mainstream medicine for diabetic scenarios. Um, it's good for cholesterol regulation. If you have prickly pear uh, pads I'm talking about now in the morning, uh, this is an amazingly healthy food, both the pads and the fruits. Outdoor Living Hour for the last Saturday in 2023. And boy, did we find a rock star in Justin Rohner with agriscaping.com. And he talks about the two W's, watering and weed control, of course. Just about the extreme swing in temperature. Pretty drastic swing on our watering practices. That huge shift puts a lot of strain on all of your plants. And that's, you know, welcome to Arizona. We don't have much uh, springtime. That's right. <laughs> we go from that, winter to summer. You know. But how do you know the right amount for the right tree or the right bush or the right plant or the right vegetable? Everybody's got different soil conditions. There's a lot of factors going into how much should I water, how long should I water, uh, you know, your emitter types, all those types of things. So let me give you a rule that's going to work for all of you. What you want to do is you're going for depth. And then a frequency. So if I'm growing my vegetable plants, I want the water depth to get to 12 inches down. And then I'm going to repeat that frequency as often as I need to so that once the top inch dries, I water it again. And so that's for my vegetables to have about a 12 to 18 inch, you know, root depth. And so that's for that level. When I'm going for my bush level of stuff, I'm going to be going for bushes. I'm going to water them down to about two feet Every time I water, and I don't want to water again until the top inch, inch and a half is dry. And this is just a general rule, but it's going to help you kind of get things calibrated, and then you can work from that point. And then for your trees right now, we want to water to a depth of three feet, and we don't want to water again until the top two inches are likely dry. And what we're doing is we're trying to train it for the summer months so that these roots start digging deeper and going wider so that we have a lot less need for water, but we're getting it to the depth that then forces that deeper rooting effect to start occurring for you. Now, if you've done a really good job planting the tree and you've got a nice bed of mulch around it, we're not talking the two inches of mulch. We're talking the two inches of ground soil. Yes, the soil beneath that mulch. Below that loose layer, we're going to go for the top inch to two inches. Make sure that's dry before I water again, because we don't want to overwater. That's another challenge that most people have often here in Arizona, especially if you've got really clay soil, they're going to water too often, and they end up rotting their roots. Root rot is a major challenge here in Arizona when it comes to killing off a tree. And you can kill off a tree in just a matter of weeks by overwatering it, especially in the heat of the summer. And what's aggravating is overwater and underwater, To the, it looks the same on the tree. Pretty much, <laughs> yeah. If you overwater and it starts to rot, then those, those leaves will wilt, but they'll wilt a little different. They'll wilt um, and they start turning color. Whereas if it's wilting because it doesn't have enough water, it's just going to droop but keep its color. Okay. And so that's going to be a difference. That's it's a, a subtle that's shift. A telltale sign. Telltale though. sign. Am I getting root rot? You know, is it shriveling and turning color or is it just wilting, just kind of drooping down and keeping its color? That'll be your indicators on which, which direction your plant might be going. And when you're talking getting water down to three feet, I mean, how is, is there an app for that that tells you, all right, you're at three feet, shut the water off? Using uh, soil probes. And these are probes that are usually like a piece of rebar, like a number three rebar. And you get a four-foot piece of that, you bend the top six inches, and you basically created yourself your own probe. So whatever time your system already says to water your stuff, water it, wait about an hour, and then you use that probe, and you just put your own little bit of body weight on it, and it should slide into the soil, and it will stop 
at the point at which the water has not penetrated sufficient. So to get to three feet, you can mark it on that, that stick, and it should go down to the three-foot level. When it comes to weed control in the rest of my yard, uh, there's a couple of options. I mean, I've been trying to steer more and more away from a lot of the chemical treatment stuff in order to mitigate weeds, but that comes with its own set of challenges. Uh, but it does come with an opportunity for a nice uh, fitness program for yourself <laughs> and, and your kids. Uh, but it, when, in all seriousness, if you, if you manage it well, you manage your water well, if you manage the thickness of your rock. Now, one of the main things I see most often in yards that have a lot of weeds is they just didn't get enough rock laid down to start with. You want a, at least two inches of loose rock if you want to mitigate your weed issues. Now, over time, those things, that rock settles into the soil and so even if you had two to three inches of rock when you first got your house or first got your landscape installed, a few years later, that's going to all settle in and you're going to start getting weeds again because it's got ground to grow in. It's closer to the surface. Whereas the, prior to that, you know, when you got three inches of rock or three inches of mulch, if you're going with more of the mulch look, you don't have enough room. It's like the seed has to go down so far into the, through the rock down to find some soil that's worth growing in. And once it grows, it's got to really use a lot of its energy before it finds any sun to get up to the very top. And by the time it gets there, it's so spindly, it's not survivable. And so it gets burned up once the sun starts hitting. So they're kind of self-mitigating when you got your landscape really set up right to start with. Now, if you don't got that and you've got a bunch of weeds showing up right now, is I'll go get a a flamethrower, literally a flamethrower, and I'll actually do flame weeding. And that does a lot of wonderful things for your garden because the flame destroy the, the seed that might have blown in from the neighbor's houses and other things. So you're, you're, you're creating a more organic way to, to kill off the weed seeds that might have shown up as well as you're burning off that, that leaf that was there. That little burned plant basically sifts through the rock or your mulch and it becomes something more useful to your plant life. If they're bigger than four leaves, that flame method just isn't going to work. They're going to survive it. A hula hoe is a tool. And what it, that does is it'll get underneath your rock layer, underneath your mulch layer, and it'll cut the base of that root. And then you're able to just rake up all that stuff, and that's a way to get rid of a lot of that mass. Uh, I mean, because if you go out there and just spray everything with an herbicide, a general herbicide, or a, uh, while these things are growing, and you've got big weeds, those weeds don't just disappear. They're going to shrink, and all that mass is still there on top of your rocks. It's actually going to build soil. So you got to really rake that stuff out even after it's dead. Otherwise, you're just reducing the amount of level you've got, uh, the depth of your rock and, and mulch, and creating essentially more soil, which means the next time, the next season, weeds are going to grow even easier in your yard. The Outdoor Living Hour at Rosie on the House continues as we move and ride along. That must mean that uh, we're going to talk about dairy here. And uh, Julie Murphy with the Arizona Farm Bureau, first Saturday of the month, brought in Stoltz Dairy. Did you know that the milk that you get in the store right now is less than 48 hours old? It's fresh. It's made right here in Arizona. And Stoltz Dairy does quite a lot of milk production and more. Jen Milliken with Stoats Dairy, and uh, they are a generational farm family. We always start with kind of the background questions so we can learn more about you. Tell us about Stoats Dairy. Tell us about your family and how you got into the dairy business. Yeah, okay. So my dad started the dairy with Ferenc Rostosi um, in 1981. Uh, it was back out, way out in Buckeye when the freeway didn't even connect 
Um, and when my dad told my mom that they were moving to Arizona to start a dairy and it was off a dirt road and the 10 didn't even go all the way in, she was like, where are we going? And she was a forestry major. So, um, that wasn't, I think on her life plan, but it worked out, grew up on the dairy, lived on the dairy my entire life, um, worked on the dairy every summer, school breaks. That's partially how I paid my way through college, that and 4-H projects. And so I went to work for Wells Fargo for, well, I think I was there five or six years in commercial banking. And then I had my oldest daughter and quickly decided that putting her in daycare every day was not my idea of what I wanted to do with my life. And at that point, um, we, my family had bought a second location. It was a dairy that had gone into bankruptcy and they bought it from the bank. Um, and my dad had been calling me weekly telling me how they're having, you know, startup issues and he could really use some help out there. And then when my oldest daughter was born, it turned into daily phone calls of, I really need to come back and help him run this dairy. And also I'm ruining his life and my mom's life by withholding their oldest grandchild and which was their <laughs> only one at that point. And how I dare I? And you are still putting in 12 hour days. And well, more. <laughs> now I'm putting in 12 hour days, but at least it's doing something I really like. Talk about some of your sustainability practices and your conservation practices. So one of my favorite things is that dairy farmers are the OG environmentalists because we're tied to the land. Like it's very important that we make sure that the land is um, sustainable, that we're treating it right. I mean, moving cows is hard. Building a new dairy is expensive. If we ruin where we're at, we can't just pick up and go somewhere no. else. It's really hard. Um, I tell everybody that. So we actually started doing a lot of sustainable stuff even before it was cool. Um, and like one of the things that we started doing that a lot of people think is awesome is we feed all of the expired produce or like produce that's not good for like it's too ugly or it has a bruise or something like that. So all of the Sam's Clubs and Walmarts in the area put all of their expired and ugly produce in trucks and they ship it to us and we feed it to our cows. Wow. And well, actually, we feed it to the heifers because there's a fun fact for you. If a cow eats like a garlic then it could possibly make her milk taste like garlic. <laughs> so we can't feed the produce to the cows, but we feed it to the heifers and they love it. But the point is they're getting their vegetables. Yes, they are. And their fruits and all kinds of fun stuff in there. But um, actually, uh, we calculated it around 40% of what we feed our cows is byproduct of the human food chain that would otherwise have ended up in a landfill. So wow. cows are awesome recyclers. They, because of the four parts of their stomach and the way that they're ruminants, they can digest stuff that other people, you know, no other animal would be able to. And they can make use of it and keep it out of the landfill. Yeah. It's the, the structure of a bovine and what they can eat. I, they're eating machines. You have caused me to conclude that a dairy cow is an eating machine. What about your water recycling efforts. So we try and make sure that we are very sustainable with our water, like, I mean, especially in Arizona. And I just saw something about how, you know, they're saying our hundred year plan is possibly in doubt. So we're making sure that we're very sustainable. Um, we reuse all of our water, I think up to six times is what I, we figured out at one point, um, because we're using fresh water at the milk barn, obviously, because it's a food production site. So we need to use fresh water and we use fresh water to wash down the calf barn. Because the babies are small and we don't, but all of the cow pens, when we use the flush lane, it's all recycled water. Um, we will use the recycled water to flush out. Um, we then screen it to get the solids out. We use the solids, which is the manure for fertilizer. Um, 
all of the water goes into our lagoon, which is actually a methane digester. And we produce enough energy there to power around 500 Arizona households. And um, when the lagoon, we have to maintain a very stable water level there. So when it, you know, starts getting a little too high, we use the water then to water the crops that are on the land around the dairy. So everything So is... every drop of water that we use, we're using it to its full potential. We're using it to wash the barn, and then we're using it to wash the pens, and then we're using it to make electricity, and then we're using it to water the crops that the cows will be eating the next year. And those whole recycling efforts are pretty common across the dairy industry, but... I just, it just seems like Stoats, you guys have really maximized on some of these conservation efforts. Our dairy and Triple G were the first two, I believe. But <laughs> us and Triple G were the first two that put in methane digesters. And partially that's because we are a quarter mile away from some generating thing where they could tie in. And it was really easy. Um, it's, and called then, a, it's called a transfer station. There you go. <laughs> I don't know. I, now, I know cows. I don't know electricity. How, how big a pond do you need for a methane digester to power 500 homes? Is that a quarter acre, uh, I th- 100 acres? No, how I think it's, it? what, if I remember correctly, and my dad's probably shaking his head at me right now, it's seven acres okay. pond. I was just curious. Jen Milliken of the Stoats Dairy. And Jen, my son has a, a question for you about cows. What do you call a cow with no legs? Ground beef. Very good. <laughs> I could bring it, dude. I know cow jokes. All right. So what do you think is the most significant contribution the dairy industry has made to the state's agriculture? Uh, we can speak about dairy products. And uh, the last time we focused on dairy, I had Tammy Baker with the Arizona milk producers out here. And we talked a lot about nutrition and the variety of products that are local. That's what's so neat. But what about the contribution to Arizona agriculture in general? Um, Well, specifically, I'm not sure exactly how many people are hired, but I mean, I know that UDA is one of the biggest employers in Tempe and all of the dairies out here. I mean, we hire a lot of people. We have around 160 employees that work just on our dairy and farm. Yes. Uh, So it's just a huge economic contribution to the state. Not only how many people we hire, but all of the products that we sell too. Fairlife, the company, um, they moved one of their their bit their first Westside plant into Arizona because they were, I guess, the biggest thing was what good quality milk we make out here. Right. Everybody's always surprised that Arizona has dairies because of how hot it is, and I'm like, well, it's really only really hot for like four months out of the year. And we have big coolers that we can use for the cows. Like we have big evaporative mist coolers. Um, here's either shade trackers or crawl cool. I have a picture that I put on the internet at one point, and it's like the outside temperature I think was 111, and under the shade temperature was 67. 60, yeah, 67. So and people were commenting like, "You guys keep your cows colder than I keep my house," and it's like, "Well, the cows are the ones that pay the bills, and if they want it cold, they get it cold." But the big thing about cows is that they don't like it wet because wet means wet pens, means they're laying out in puddles means that they start getting sick. Arizona is actually a great place, and cows really like it when it's dry outside. Usually our average production per cow outstrips what some of the other Midwest states can do. Yeah, we get a pretty good high production per cow. The other thing is dairy and beef kind of rotate in the top spot. 
in our ag commodities in the state of Arizona, averaging anywhere in the case of dairy, 600 to 700, all the way up to 800 million in just cash receipts. That's not counting all the other economic contributions, like you were mentioning, labor, how many you employed in the dairy industry. And because of this competition between the beef industry and the dairy industry, and it's also important for us to recognize that the dairy industry is contributing to, quote, unquote, the local market. If we don't have dairies situated in Arizona, we're not going to have local milk. From what I understand, all gallon milk sold in Arizona is local milk, and it's less than 48 hours from farm to grocery store. And because milk is 87 percent water, it's expensive to ship. So it's just it makes more sense to have the dairies local because then you save on the shipping and also milk since it's perishable. And, you know, it's just better to have it local. Jen, what is the most important message you regularly share with Arizona families about what you do? Gosh, I think it's just what I've been talking about, that, you know, dairy farmers are taking great care of their cows. We're making sure that the milk is the best quality milk that you could possibly drink and that it's a great source of nutrition. And that's something I had wanted to ask you. When you you get into the kind of homesteading content, one person was saying, you know, that you need to have your own dairy cow because if you go and buy it from the store, it could, you know, one gallon of milk, you could have parts of milk from, you know, up to 800 different cows. And like you said, you guys have 9,000 cows and they're all eating and drinking the same thing. So, So first of all, the people that want to get their own cow, I'm like, good luck to you, sir, because um, milking a cow twice a day, every day, no matter what. Like, uh, it's hard, and especially if you're going to do it by hand. I milked a cow by hand one time just to say I'd done it, and it was not enjoyable. Like, milking machines are a lot better. Yeah, we have a lot of cows, but we have a motto on Stoats Dairy. It's kind of our defining motto. It's treat every cow like she's your only cow. So when you're making decisions about a cow, you're doing it as if she was your only cow. Um, We're making sure... That, you know, every cow feels like she's special and an important part of the dairy because she is. And so, I mean, yeah, we're mixing the milk of all 9,001 milk cows into the tanker every day. But every cow is being treated right. The milk is being treated right. We hire people that have been trained. We have vets on staff. We have nutritionists. We have, you know, we're treating the cows right. We know what we're doing We're probably doing better than, I mean, I have random people that are contacting me on Facebook. I bought a cow at the auction and I don't, it's doing this thing and I don't know what to do and I'm too cheap to call a vet. Can you just tell me what to do? And I'm like, God, can can you just let the dairy farmers handle it? Like we, we know what we're doing. Just let us do it. You Um, know, we, we've been through this whole hour and Rosie, you I'm surprised you haven't asked about the one milk you like so much. I did off air. Oh, you did? <laughs> I did off air. Yeah, I hate it. I, I did Full disclosure. I, I did. I asked off air. <laughs> we still haven't. Don't yes, help. he asked me why we don't sell whole buttermilk in Arizona, and I didn't the realize that that was something cotton. that people drink. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. That must be a southern thing. I Yeah, never heard of it. I use it for baking, and he's swearing up and down that, you know, you'll never see a doctor again if you drink whole buttermilk. So I've got... I've got a milk joke. I want to hear it. Yeah. Uh, you can't name a topic that I don't have a Cajun joke on. And this is a Cajun joke. <laughs> and Marie, she come home from the casino one night, and Boudreaux there sitting at the chair watching his TV. And oh my goodness, he noticed that woman, she got cash dropping out her wallet. She got cash dropping out her purse. She got cash dropping out her pockets. Marie, 
You hit it big tonight at the casino shaft. Oh, Boudreaux, I did. And I want to do something all the rich people do all the time. I want to take a hot milk bath. <laughs> I, would, I want that more than anything right now. Boudreaux say, well, yeah. I'll take a fistful of that money. I'll go buy you milk. I'll be right back. He'd run out the door and he'd slap his head. He'd go, oh, I forgot to ask her. He'd run back inside. He'd say, Marie, do you want that milk pasteurized? She says, oh, no, Shad, just up to my chin. <laughs> I love it. We've had some good jokes today. That's funny. So um, there's plenty of milk jokes, and I'm sure our listeners have some of their own. And one more outdoor living hour tip with Farmer Greg. You hear the term annuals and perennials. That usually applies to flowers. It also applies to vegetables, especially if you're making a food forest. Annuals you plant every year. And when you let things go to seed, like carrots or parsley, basil, when you let those things go to seed, they'll replant themselves every year. If you have good, healthy soil underneath them and you let them go to seed, they're going to come back year after year on their own. But annuals have their entire life cycle in one season. And then there's perennials that you plant once and they just come back year after year. Your fruit trees, asparagus is a great perennial to plant. Planting asparagus, you want to dig a trench, maybe a foot, foot and a half deep, and you put the asparagus roots in there leave the trench open, but just put two or three inches of compost on top of them. And then when they come up, you put two or three more inches of compost on top of them, and then they'll come up past the compost. And you do that until you get them up to ground level. Let the asparagus flower out the first year, because what it's doing is it's collecting all the nutrients from the sun and the soil and building out the root system. So it just comes back year after year, which is cool. Next year in our Outdoor Living Hour, we've got a lot planned for you already. If you've looked through the homeowner handbook, the Farm Fresh Hour, the first Saturday of the month. So Julie will be here January 6th talking leafy greens. That's when Arizona is producing 90% of the produce that's consumed by the country. It's all coming out of Yuma. Second hour, it used to be talking trees, but John Eisenhower retired. And so we've got Justin from Agriscaping and the Queen Creek Botanical Gardens taking over that hour, the ultimate gardening hour, and we're going to be talking bare root fruit trees. Jay Harper, third Saturday of every month, notes from the nursery. We're actually talking outdoor lighting, and we'll have Aaron Marco of Core Landscape in with us that week as well. Urban farming, we'll be talking guilds and fruit trees, and Farmer Greg's got a guest lined up for that hour. But that's one unique thing about this year that will change is Julie always brings in a farmer to talk about whatever commodity they're covering. Uh, Farmer Greg's going to be bringing a lot of guests. Jay's bringing a lot of guests. So amount of additional landscape and outdoor growing knowledge that we'll have in 2024 is really exciting. And everything that uh, the Botanical Gardens is going to be able to bring in in that second hour. So we're really excited. We've got some different topics that we've never covered before, like you know, hyper-local food, uh, subtropical plants for edibles, ancient grains. You know, we do really good grain here. Uh, in fact, a lot of uh, our durum wheat is actually preferred for pasta making over a lot of the stuff that they grow in Italy because our, our grains are so good here. So we're, we're really excited as this hour continues to, you know, kind of take on a life of its own and grow. <laughs> Outdoor living hour, grow and grow, get it. It, it grows as we find ways to continue to bring new information. You know, there's 
a lot of time, you know, after how many years, you know, you can answer the same citrus tree question over and over and over again from callers. And I just kept thinking, you know, there's there's so much more and there's so many experts that are local here in Arizona that have been doing it for so long that we could really bring so much more to this hour. So that's when we originally broke it up. And if you haven't caught a farm fresh hour yet, I mean, there's no other industry that we have found anywhere that has as many generational. They're farmers, but, you know, there, there's no other industry that has as many generational participants. How many third generation doctors do you know? How many third generation policemen do you know? How many third generation uh, carpenters do you know? I mean, virtually every farmer that comes in, you know, if they're a first year farmer or first generation farmer, it's usually because they've married into a generational farmer, but they're the better at the public speaking. So they're the ones that Julie brings in to join. But I mean, virtually everybody uh, is is multi-generational and so many of them are here locally and have great stories about you know from their great-grandparents moving out here and settling down and you know working the land for over 100 years so it's it's a really fun hour and you can scroll through your Rosie on the house homeowner handbook and just kind of get a preview of everything we have lined out and if there's one that in particular you know piques your interest you can mark you know, set a reminder to make sure and tune in or set a reminder to make sure you get the podcast. And 98% of these are live. So if there's a specific question you would like to ask about, you know, the dairy industry, that'll be covered on June 1st or uh, some things on melons that's covered July 6th as I'm scrolling through here myself. We have some of the best melon produce, but what's really interesting is they big farmers, even the big farmers have a hard time being profitable. In fact, Del Monte uh, even closed down their melon growing facility in Harquahela. And as far as I know, there's not a big commercial uh, melon grower. We do have watermelons. Um, the Russo Farms out on the West Valley of the Phoenix area does. But uh, we don't have any major cantaloupe or uh, honeydew melon growers. And, and we do great with melons and pumpkins in Arizona. In fact, they almost called Phoenix Pumpkinville because of all the pumpkins and gourds that were left over growing uh, from ancient civilizations from the Indians. It's a great environment for growing those, but I don't know. There's something about it that even somebody as big as Del Monte can't make it profitable. But what's great about melons as well, you can a lot of times get more than one crop out of a year. Uh, so it's, it's something that you should be able to get two harvests out of. We'll have local growers in and on that July 6th program, so if there's something you would like to ask, or how much space do I need for it, or what are some of your growing techniques, what kind of soils, that's what this program is about, getting the education out there for you, and it's our partners and our guests and our associate partners that help make it possible, because they're the ones that are the experts, we just have the platform for them to come share their knowledge with you. It's Rosie on the house.